Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, Romans chapter 12. I want to remind you before we get there, all the things that Paul has taught us in Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11. God has loved us. God has chosen us. God has predestined us. God has called us. God has justified us. God has saved us by grace. God has done all these amazing things to us. The Holy Spirit has set us free from the bondage to sin. Um, So all these things God has done for us. So before we get to what we're going to get to tonight, I want to just remind you as we go through Romans, never lose sight of what God has done for you in the gospel. Okay, Let that grace and your identity in Christ serve as the foundation and motivation for you to live a life of joyful obedience to Jesus out of gratitude to what He's done. In other words, look at how chapter 12, verse 1 starts. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Okay, Paul shifts gears in chapter 12. Chapters 1 through 11 is very theological, a lot about salvation, how God saves us. Then he shifts gears in chapter 12 and talks about, okay, now here's how you live it out. You want to have your mind renewed. You want to be transformed. You want to use your spiritual gifts. And then tonight, he's going to talk to us about how do we live out our Christianity in very practical ways. But I don't want to be legalistic tonight and say, just do all these things in your own flesh. Paul starts chapter 12 with the gospel, by the mercies of God. Everything that, I've, that Paul's taught you in chapters 1 through chapters 11 about the mercies of God, about the grace of God, that's the only way you can live this life of worship, this life of obedience. And so in verses 9 through 21, there's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot. I mean... I think there's, I didn't count up how many, but there's at least over 15 to 17 different commands that we're supposed to obey. Okay, so we can lose the force for the trees tonight, and I hope we don't do that. But Paul gives us, and my uninspired foot or superscript or whatever there says marks of the true Christian. That's what the ESV says, marks of a true Christian. So as we look at these marks of a true Christian, let's just remember The only way we can live these out is by what Paul told us in verse 1, by the mercies of God. So this is grace, Holy Spirit-empowered obedience. This is very practical. So let's look at this list. This is a long list, and we're going to go over each one. And I've got a bunch of supporting scriptures to help us see how the Bible um, gives us this truth in many different ways. So let's pick up in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A lot of stuff there. How does Paul start the entire conversation? Let love be genuine. Everything starts and ends with love. They'll know we are Christians by our bumper stickers, right? They'll know we're Christians by how loud we play Caleb. They'll know we're Christians if we go to church every Sunday. I'm not saying you don't do those things, but what does Jesus say? They'll know we're Christians by the way we love. Okay. So notice what he says there. Let your love be genuine. Okay, the Greek word there is um, not hypocritical. Like not wearing a mask. And I've got a lot of... Tonight may be a little bit different than what we've done in the past. I may want there to be a little bit more discussion tonight. So I'm going to ask some questions after these. And maybe we'll generate some discussion tonight. So if we don't get through... Don't be stressed out. You can always come back next week. This is for your benefit. So if you don't want to discuss, that's fine. If you want to sit and listen to me talk all night, that's fine. So let love be genuine. Okay, 1 Timothy 1.5 says this. The aim of our charge is love, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by obedience for the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So love one another earnestly, love one another purely, love one another genuinely. So question, is there such thing as an insincere or a non-genuine type of love? Why, why wouldn't Paul just say, Love each other. Why does he say, let your love be genuine? Can there be a fake kind of love? Okay. If you put on a mask and you play a hip... So I can tell you I love you, but I really haven't loved you unless I've shown you I loved you with, with actions. So there is such a thing as a fake kind of love. But Paul here says, have a genuine love. So that's where every, every other command that's in this passage of Scripture, I think, stems from that whole idea of loving one another. This genuine, heartfelt, agape type of love. Okay? So it starts with love. Then he says, abhor what is evil or hate what is evil. It's interesting that right after he talks about love... He says, hate what is evil. Our culture confuses love 
because it not only tolerates but approves and celebrates sinful behavior. So, let me play devil's advocate here. The Bible says, let your love be genuine. So anything goes, just love anybody and there's no such thing as absolute truth. And so you're not really, if you tell somebody they're sinning or you tell somebody they need to repent or you tell somebody they're wrong, you're not really being loving. It's not loving to tell somebody they're wrong. You should just accept them for who they are. Let them do what they want to do. Because after all, let me write on the board here what our, what our culture's greatest God is. What do you think our culture's greatest God is? Just a little lowercase g. I'm going to write it up here. Self-expression. Our culture has elevated that to the highest value. Nobody tells me how I live. You don't have a right to tell me what to do. The greatest good is I need to be able to have the right to express myself no matter what that means. You hear that all the time out there? Okay. What if your self-expression is actually evil? What if what you're doing is wrong? Is it loving to let you continue in that? This is strong language. Paul says here, hate what is evil. Hate what is evil. Don't hate the person. Hate the evil. Okay? Sometimes to truly love somebody, you have to speak the truth to them. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who's the head into Christ. Okay, speak the truth in love. That's hard to do, isn't it? What does it mean to speak the truth? That means you might have to go to somebody lovingly and say, I love you, but what you're doing is wrong. And because I love you so much, I'm going to speak the truth to you. It doesn't do me any good not to speak the truth to you and let you continue in this. It's actually less loving. But what are we afraid to do? Hurt their feelings. We often don't want to speak the truth in love. There's a, there's a balance there. So, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, but hold fast to what is good. Stick, stick like glue to what is good. That's really what the word there means is to stick like glue to what is good. Okay. So, <laughs> Paul assumes something here, doesn't he? I'm going to write two words up here. Paul assumes you know what's evil and what's good. Because if you're to hate what's evil and stick to what's good, he doesn't define those, does he? I don't have the verse here. I put a should have been in there. I think it's in Isaiah. It's some, I'm going to paraphrase. It was a really bad paraphrase, but it says something like, Woe to those who call good evil and call evil good. Do, do we have people in our culture right now that are calling things that are evil good? And do we have people in our culture right now calling things that are good evil? So we live in a culture where good and evil aren't even just accepted as what's good and evil. There's not an agreement in our culture what's good and evil. Now, as Christians, we should have agreement because the Bible tells us what's good and evil. So we're to hate what's evil and we're to stick like glue to what's good. 
I'm reminded of Philippians 4.8 when it talks about what's good. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Hate evil. Stick to glue to things that are good. And then Paul's repetitive. What does he say in verse 10? Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, it's a little bit different than let your love be genuine. Why does he say brotherly affection or sisterly affection? We've been adopted into God's family. We've been bought with the blood of Christ, and now we are brothers and sisters. So we're to show brotherly affection to one another. We don't often say this in our church as much. They do it in the South a lot, but we don't do it here in Colorado because it sounds kind of funky to us. But in the Southern churches, they often call people brother and sister, like Sister Dawn or Sister Janae or Brother Rico. And to us, we kind of like that's kind of a weird language because we don't often use that here in Colorado. But it's biblical language because what are we? Our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. Sister Mustard. Okay. Yeah, they go by your last name. Your last name. Yeah. So we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me ask you this. You don't have to answer this out loud, but do you ever have? stronger relationships with Christians than you do with your own family members at times? Brothers and sisters that are your blood brothers and sisters. That's the unique part of being a Christian is that you're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to love one another with that brotherly, sisterly affection. And we're to outdo one another in showing honor. Okay, outdo one another in showing honor. Instead of being first in line to receive praise and attention, we're to be first in line to honor others and humble ourselves before others. What does it mean to outdo somebody? Like Paul's playing here on where, okay, when you think about outdoing somebody, you think of a competition. Like I want to be better than them. So like if I'm playing basketball, I want to outdo the competition and score more points, okay? You want to be better. But Paul's like, okay, let's let's let's. Let's play a little game here. Outdo one another in what? Showing honor. What does our culture say? Outdo one another in putting yourself first. What does the Bible say? Put the other person first. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay. Why is it so hard to die to self and elevate others to a position of honor? What, what does our heart want to do all the time? I want to be first. I'm entitled to be first and get out of my way so I can be first. And if you're in my way, I'm going to push you out of the way. Now, we wouldn't consciously say that. But when I drive, I say that in my head. 
as I tailgate the person and say, I have a right to be on this road and you're going too slow, so move over. <laughs> Dawn knows that because she drives with me and knows that I can. Are we quick to give other people honor? To not be so conceited or not so looking out. We want ourselves to be honored. It's taking a back seat. It's being willing to go last. It's, it's being willing to, to serve others. Okay. Then verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So this is passionate service. Now, last week we talked about using your spiritual gifts to serve. Paul here says you need to have a zeal. What's, what's zeal? It's like an excitement. It's a passion. What's sluggish or slothful? Me. Okay, some of you here tonight, some, I can tell some of you here tonight, last thing I want to hear about is zeal. Talk about slothful. Let his voice go like this so I can just fall asleep to Sean's voice. No, anyway, I won't, I won't hypnotize you tonight. But um, it's interesting there because that word fervent in spirit literally means you're boiling over with the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit is empowering you to serve, to, um, to put others first, to serve the Lord. You can only serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't serve the Lord in your own flesh. And it's this whole idea of it's, it's not a drudgery. You're doing it because the Holy Spirit's giving you that zeal, giving you that excitement. Paul says in Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Work heartily. Now, <laughs> does that mean that we always have to be hyper, peewee, hermanish, cappy, clappy, I'm serving the Lord. Like, is that, is that what it's talking about? I'm trying to keep you guys awake, okay? Because you're all falling asleep. And Jan's in there going. <laughs> I know how to get Jan to laugh at times. And so, and Tarina. They've been on foreign mission trips with me before and have seen me at my most interesting. <laughs> I'll let you tell, I'll let them tell you my stories. But. So, Zeal, does this mean that we're always like way up here in zeal for the Lord? Or does it just mean that the Holy Spirit gives us that, that motivation, that passion? Because let's, let's, let's just be, real, let's be realistic. Are there times when you don't want to serve the Lord or serve others? And you just kind of want to be like, okay, everything in your flesh says what? I want to focus on me. I don't want to give any more of myself. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to, I, I'm, I'm spent. And I'm not saying that you should like serve all the time and never take a break and never take a Sabbath and never rest. What Paul, I think, is saying here is that when you serve, there should be holy, you should be bubbling over with the power of the Holy Spirit giving you that ability to serve. So if you find yourself slothful, what should you do? Pray for the Holy Spirit to give you energy, okay, encouragement, okay? Verse 12, rejoice in hope. 
what is hope and what is joy? It's interesting. Rejoice in hope. Have joy in hope. What's the difference between joy and what's the difference between hope? What's joy? And what's hope? They're different. What's peace? What's joy? I'm trying to keep you guys away today. Okay, what is hope? Well, let's, let's ask a question. What is joy? Okay, what is joy? What is joy? This is Sean. Which one is it? Okay, this is Sean's definition of joy. I've told it to you before. It's my best attempt to capture it. Joy is that deep-seated sense of contentment and peace, regardless of circumstances, where you're trusting in the sovereignty of God no matter what. So happiness is based upon circumstances. Joy you can be joyful in any type of circumstances. So joy is that deep-seated sense of contentment. What is hope? Is hope is a wishful thinking, cross your fingers, I hope it's going to happen okay. Or is it a solid expectation that God's true to His promises? Okay. Now, Peter gives us an interesting statement in 1 Peter 1, 3-4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a dead hope, but a living hope because Jesus rose from the dead. It's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we are to be hopeful, to be rejoicing, to be joyful people. And then right on the heels of that, what does Paul say? Oh yeah, as you're rejoicing in hope, be patient in tribulation. The word tribulation means to be squeezed through a narrow passageway or like a vice grip. Will we go through times of tribulation as Christians? Yes, we will. Paul wouldn't say be patient through it. Listen to what Jesus said in John 16.33. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Read that carefully. What does Jesus not say? In the world you might have tribulation. What does He say? You will have tribulation. Acts 14.22 Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Why are we as Americans allergic to suffering? And tribulation. Okay. We've had such a good life in America compared to the rest of the world that somehow we feel like we're entitled to a good life because that's just what I'm entitled to. What does the health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel promise? You, if you become a Christian, you won't have tribulation. And if you do, you don't have enough faith. So God wants you to give money to my ministry. So if you give money to my ministry, I will send you a prayer cloth and pray for you not to have tribulation. And if you have tribulation, it's your fault. So keep sending me money so I can keep praying for you so you won't have tribulation. And if you continue to have tribulation, it's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. So keep sending me the money so I can send you another prayer cloth so I can keep praying for you. You see how I'm getting rich? 
because I know there's going to be tribulation and I can keep putting it back on you that's your fault. And so you're going to keep giving money because you believe that my prayers are helping you. So I'm perpetuating my wealth and your despair. That's why the prosperity gospel is so ungodly because you have these men and women that know better that are preying upon people that are really, truly hurting. So be patient in tribulation. Think about how countercultural these um, statements are. Rejoice, be joyful, be patient in tribulation. What's our temptation in tribulation? Impatience, to give up, to not want to go through it, to not trust in the Lord, to complain. And that's why I think Paul rounds it out there at the end of verse 12 with be constant in prayer. We must always have an attitude of prayer not only for ourselves, but we need to be interceding for others. Now, when he says be constant in prayer, does that mean that you're praying 24-7, like all the time you're praying? Dear Heavenly Father, help me as I walk down the street. Dear Heavenly Father, help me as I go buy this thing at Walmart. Dear Heavenly Father, help me. I mean, is it, is it like we're, we're praying a, a prayer at every step of the way? Like, what about Bob? Baby steps to the car. <laughs> Dear Lord, help me to the car. I mean, is it like, is it that or is it an attitude? Like you're prayerfully, your, your whole life is in an attitude of prayer. Now, there are times when you need to spend extended time in prayer. And there are times when you have an attitude of prayer. Um, and you need to be praying for other people. Paul gives us two prayers for him in Ephesians and Colossians. And this is related to evangelism. This is related to sharing our faith, which I think is interesting that Paul would ask us to pray for him to share his faith. Because when you think about Paul, don't you think he's like the greatest evangelist of all time? The greatest sharer of, of the faith? Um, Ephesians 6, 18-20, Paul says, Praying at all times, there's that pray constantly, in the Spirit, with all prayers and supplication. Okay, so pray at all times. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Okay, so pray for other believers. Pray also for me. Okay, Paul, what do you want us to pray for? That words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So what words repeated there twice? Boldly. So what does Paul say? Pray for me to have... What's he pray for? Pray for me to have what? Boldness. Do you and I need boldness when it comes to sharing our faith? Do we need to have other people praying for us? Now, look at Colossians. Now, let me just ask you, how does Ephesians verse 20 end? How does it end? As I ought to speak, which means what? It's what Paul's, what we're supposed to be doing. Okay? Ought to speak. Okay, now, remember that. Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving, at the same time pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So what does Paul pray for in this verse? I'll just use the word clarity. Make it clear. Paul says, I, want, I need boldness and I need clarity when it comes to sharing your faith. Isn't that what we need, boldness and clarity? I want, to, I, want to, I want them to make the gospel clear so they understand it. 
And I want to, I may be able to make the gospel clear, but I may not be able to be bold enough to actually get it out. Or I may be a jerk and be real bold, but I'm not really telling it, not making it clear. So we need both of those. So rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. All right, verse 11, 13, giving financially. This is contribute to the needs of the saints. One of the true marks that you're undergoing transformation is in your giving habits. Are you a cheerful giver? Do you share your time, talents, and treasures? Are you contributing to the needs of the saints? This is talking about financial giving. Now, let's look at what the early church did, how they lived this out. In Acts 2, 41-47, So those who received His word, that's Peter, when Peter preached at Pentecost, they were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And all who believed were together had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temples together and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this almost sounds a little bit like, some people think this sounds like communism. Everybody was like, no, there was no ownership of property and everybody was giving stuff up. No, that's not what it was. Communism is the government compelling you to share your wealth with others. This was a voluntary early church, spontaneous. If people had need, they would give financially to help those in need. In Galatians 6.10 says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are the household of faith. Okay. We have a benevolence policy that we've developed that our deacons kind of oversee. And a person that walks in off the street that has no connection to a manual, we may or may not help. We may or may not help. We may or we may not. If a person is a member of a manual Baptist church and they're part of the family, we will help them. And they will get more help than somebody that's not part of the family. And that's not because we're trying to be unfair. It's just the Bible says, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. Those who are part of our own church family should be getting more help, more financial support, more encouragement than maybe those that aren't part of our church. It doesn't mean we don't help those that are outside our church. It just means that we need to do good, especially to those who are in the household of faith. So we need to be generous, contribute to the needs of the saints. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Okay. I'm going to ask a tough question. Why do so many Christians find it hard to contribute to the needs of the saints or to give financially or to 
be cheerful givers. What was that, Trina? I said it goes back to selfishness. Okay. We want to hold on to the things that we earn. We don't want to have to give back. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Was Jesus generous? Did Jesus give just 10% of his life? <laughs> what did Jesus give? He gave all. Okay. He gave, he gave us everything. He calls us to give back just a portion of what he's given to us. And I, and I feel the pain, I mean, of, of why people don't want to give. And I think a part of it is if I give to the church or if I give to a ministry, I'm not going to have money left over to pay my bills, to make ends meet, to do this or do that. So there's a fear. Like if I, if I give to the church... That's money I could be used elsewhere, okay? But we, Don and I, have found over the years that if we give first to the church, God takes care of the rest. And it's really weird as a pastor to give to the church because I'm basically paying my own salary. <laughs> you thought about that? Like, I'm, it's the only job I know of where I give, like, I get paid back for mostly what I give. And so um, I have some friends that one time we were talking about giving. They're from a different church. And she's like, you give to your church? You, you, you give financially? I said, yeah. She said, I thought pastors weren't supposed to give because you got paid from the church. And I said, okay, before I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. And a Christian's supposed to give to the Lord regardless of whether I'm a pastor. So I'm giving because I'm a Christian, but I'm also giving to, to show an example to the congregation. So I understand how it is difficult to give, how it's painful, how it's fearful, but I can tell you from firsthand experience that when you give first to the Lord, He takes care of everything else. It's just that trust. You've got to just say, am I really going to trust the Lord or am I going to kind of not? Who's really in charge of your finances? You or the Lord? You think you're in charge, but could God like take everything away from you the next day? And he'd have a right to do that. Now, I'm not saying he will, but I'm just saying God owns everything anyway. Why not be generous, especially to the needs of the saints? Um, there's a lot of needs um, in the life of a church. There's missions needs, there's ministry needs, there's, there's just a lot of needs, okay? All right, the next one, and sometimes I feel like I'm going from preaching to meddling because Paul's like meddling in your business here. He's like, he's getting real personal, okay? So the next one is show hospitality. Now, what is hospitality? Hebrews 13.2. Entertaining angels. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. What is hospitality? The, the Greek word is stranger love. Loving a stranger. Or loving the foreigner. Okay, back in that culture, they did not have um, holiday inns or best westerns or, you know, Hampton inns. They didn't have, they didn't have hotels. So if a stranger or a Christian or somebody came to town... They'd either have to sleep on the street or sleep under a tree 
in that culture, the Christians were the ones that said, we don't want you to sleep outside. Come into our home and we'll, we'll take care of you. Um, so hospitality doesn't necessarily mean that you have to open your home, although that's a very important piece of it. Um, let me ask you a question. There are times in our church, church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, for lack of, and I don't know all the ins and outs of it, and I don't know all the details, but there have been times where people have come to me and said, Emmanuel's not been welcoming or hospitable. Um, so how would you be hospitable on a Sunday morning? Let's just not, let's not make it personal. Like I'm not talking about inviting people into your home. That's really risky for some of you that don't like your homes being invaded. Um, but let's just make it a little bit simple and say, okay, how can we make a manual hospitable and welcoming? Practically, how would you do that? We'll reach out to new faces in your community. Okay. Don't just think because I'm not on the welcoming committee. Okay. So, do you guys know? Do you guys know when new people show up? New people show up to Emmanuel either really, really early, and they come in and they sit down and they read their bulletin because they're nervous and they want to know what's going on. And oftentimes, what happens? Everybody else is out in the foyer talking to their friends, and they're sitting there waiting. And so, I, as pastor, go talk to them because that's my job. But I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that's my job. I mean, I'm saying I want to go meet these new people. But in a church our size, it could be a little intimidating because you may not know if they're new or not. So you go up to somebody and say, "Hey, are you new? <laughs> yeah, I've been coming here for the past ten years. What are you talking about?" So you, that's not what you. You don't go up to them and say, "Hey, are you new?" You may just need to say, "Hey, um, you know what? Sometimes I sit in different places on Sunday morning. I'm Sean. Tell me your name." Don't say how long have you been coming. Just introduce yourself to them and then start, start talking to them. So guests will come in early and they'll sit down and wait. Or they'll come in after the music starts and they'll go up in the balcony and they'll leave right away. Janae, you see it because you're out there at the table, at the Welcome Center table oftentimes. But how, how can we show hospitality? Um, do you know that most people will make an impression of the church the moment they walk out of their car and step on the parking lot? Once they get into the building, they've got a vibe of what they're feeling. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that comes to Emmanuel needs to come back that's first-time guests. But here's what I would say. If anybody that's a first-time guest at Emmanuel is going to be offended, let me offend them from the pulpit with the preaching. Because I'm going to offend them at some point when I speak, speak the truth, okay? If I speak the truth in love, I'd rather them go home saying, man, that pastor really preached the truth, and I was offended, then nobody talked to me. So let's not put offenses before people actually have a chance to hear the message. Um, and we don't know what people's minds and hearts are when they walk into the building. They could be going through all manner of things, and, and maybe just the fact that, and this is another thing I've seen before too. Sometimes we have two entry doors into our sanctuary, right? Well, we had the, the side ones, but the two main doors, okay. And the, the people stand there and they hand out the bulletins. Well, guess what happens? Sometimes it gets clogged up because people begin to talk and they just kind of congregate in a little bubble right there and it's blocking the entrance to the, 
to the actual sanctuary. And I've actually sat back and watched, and I've seen a new person try to figure out how they're going to get around the, the, the bubble to get into the sanctuary. I'm not trying to pick on our church, but there's been times, one time when I was playing drums on a Sunday morning during the welcome time, I stood up on the stage and watched what was going on. I didn't go down and greet greet it. There was a new couple I saw out there. Somebody from this side of the sanctuary went from this side of the sanctuary. They grabbed hands right between the new couple and didn't say a word to them. I, I watched. Nobody said anything to that new couple. They never came back. Now, I'm not saying they, for whatever reason, I'm just saying that should not have happened. So welcoming and hospitality is not just for those that are scheduled to be greeters on Sunday morning, those that hand out the bulletins, those that are on pastoral staff, it's incumbent upon all of us to create an atmosphere of welcoming strangers, welcoming guests, being open and and acting like you're excited that somebody's here today. Okay, so like Don and I, we open our home every Tuesday night. Um, Like last night, it was the 20-somethings. Next week, it's the what, what do we call you guys? The young, the young marrieds with young kids. And we're excited. And so we get our house ready. And so we're cleaning the house. We're cooking the food. And then when that time, when 630 comes, we're excited that we have people in our home and we love to have them in our home and we want them to feel that love and that welcome. And so as a church, how are we fostering that type of, of hospitality? Okay, I've talked a lot about hospitality. Let's. Any questions on that before we move forward? How, how, how do you... How do you create an environment of hospitality? All right. That's really, um, I think what Paul's talking about in verses 9 through 13 is, is Christian to Christian. I think when he gets to verses 14 through 21, I think it can still be Christian to Christian, but I think it's really more how do you interact with those outside the faith? He doesn't explicitly say that, but it seems like the type of things he's talking about here could be the way people treat you outside the faith, but I think it also could be the way people treat you in the faith. But how do you deal with situations where people, how do you deal with really bad interpersonal conflict? That's what he's going to talk about next, okay? So what does he say in verse 14? Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Bless those who persecute you. Okay, this is really difficult to do. What does it mean to be persecuted? How do you bless a person that persecutes you? Bless you, my persecutor friend. I mean, how do you? I mean, what do you? How do you bless? I mean, what do you? What do you do? Somebody comes up and spits in your face. I bless you. Well, I mean, what do you do? Okay, notice what it says. Don't curse them. What's, what does it mean to curse somebody? To cuss them out. If somebody treats you badly, what do you, what's your first reaction? That son of a blinkety blunkety blunkety blunk. That you know, you want to say some some choice words. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew five forty four. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. What does the world say? Hate and crush your enemies. This is really hard, especially if you have a real enemy. 
Are you really experiencing persecution? Are you really having somebody come against you? You don't curse them. You, you, speak, you speak a good word to them. Um, you don't gossip. You don't cut down your enemies. 1 Corinthians 4.12 We labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When reviled, we bless. I don't, I don't know how to answer this in your personal life, but you may just want to think about what are practical ways you can bless your enemies. Okay, so here's what I want you to think about. Right now, do you have a person in your life that you would consider an enemy, an adversary? If you don't, that's great. <laughs> if you do, the first thing you can do is pray for them. That's what Paul says, pray. Instead of cursing them or complaining about them or gossiping about them, do you ever stop and pray for them? Sometimes your heart changes when you pray. Your heart changes towards another person when you pray for them. And God may change their heart through your prayers as well. All right? All right, verse 15. Verse 15 is mutual empathy. Rejoice. Whoops. Rejoice with others and weep with others. Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. When somebody is going through a tough time, you weep with them. If somebody's going through a good time, you rejoice with them. It reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 24-27. He says, God is... So compose the body, giving greater honors to the parts that lacked, that there may be no division in the body. Okay, no division in the church. But the members of the church may have the same care, the mutual care for one another. If one member of the church suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You're the body of Christ and individually members of it. Okay. Now, how do you... Well, let, let me ask the question. Let, let's talk about the prodigal son. The prodigal son is a guy that does not rejoice when he's supposed to rejoice. What do we know about the, the prodigal son? The son that went off and squandered his... What happened when he came back? How did the father treat him? The father ran out, kissed him, threw a party for him, said, my son who's been lost, let's throw a party. Let's, let's celebrate that my lost son is back. What's the other brother do? What should he have done? He's, he's back. I want to rejoice. He was lost. He's, he's, he's repented of his lifestyle and he's come back. Father, I'm going to rejoice with you. So let's find out how the older son did that. Luke 15, 25-32. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received his son back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friend. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. He was found. 
do you get bitter when somebody suffers, or when, do you get bitter when somebody has a victory? Or do you celebrate with them? And if somebody's going through a hard time, do you, do you mourn with them, or do you say, oh, they got, what they, they got what was coming to them? In order for you to celebrate and to weep, you have to really know what's going on in other people's lives. You've got to communicate. How am I going to celebrate with you if I don't know what's going on in your life? How am I going to weep with you if I don't know what's going on in your life? There's got to be a culture in our church where there's open communication, where we're free to share our struggles, we're free to share our victories, we're free to share our, our, our sorrows so that other people can come alongside and celebrate with us and mourn with us. But what's the problem? What are we afraid of? If I share, that makes me vulnerable and I could get hurt. So it's better not to let anybody know. I don't want to bother anybody. I can't tell you how many times somebody in the church has told me, did you know so-and-so is going through such-and-such because I saw it on Facebook? No, I didn't know that. They didn't call the church office. They didn't call me. They didn't text me. They didn't email me. They posted on social media. And then I will call that person or, and I'll say, hey, um, I hear you're having surgery. I hear you're having this. Um, can I pray for you? And, and you know what they always say to me? Well, you're busy, Pastor Sean. I didn't want to bother you. I don't like that because I'm not busy. I mean, everybody's busy, but what's the attitude a lot of people have? I'll just go it alone. I don't want to bother anybody. I'll just kind of, you know, bite my upper lip and just kind of just do it alone because I don't want to bother anybody. A church should, you should never have a church culture where you're afraid to bother somebody else, especially your pastor. We should have the freedom to say, you know what? I'm going through a tough time and I need some help. Would you counsel me? Would you walk through this with me? Would you? I need a shoulder to cry on. Or guess what happened? I, this, this is a great praise and I want to be able to share it and we want to celebrate with you. But you gotta, you got to communicate. you got to know what's going on in, your, in, in each other's lives to be able to do that. All right, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own eyes. Okay, what does haughty mean? That's not a word we use a lot. What does it mean? Don't be haughty. Not don't be a haughty. But don't be haughty. Conceited, full of yourself. Um, there's a lot of Proverbs that speak about this, but let me just give you one. Proverbs 3, 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't be wise in your own sight. What does it mean to be wise in your own sight? You have an inflated ego. You think more of yourself than others think of you. <laughs> You're, you need to get off your high horse. You need to learn to not be so puffed up. Um, Isaiah 5 21 says woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight woe to them okay let's talk about prejudice and this may not even be i'm not even necessarily talking about racial prejudice although that could be but i think every single one of us if we're honest with ourselves has somebody that we don't want to associate with what does he say there do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Or be willing to do menial tasks. Have you ever heard yourself saying, well, I'm above that. 
I'm too good for that. I don't know if I want to talk to that person. I'm too good for them. I'm too good for that. I don't want to lower myself to their standards. What are you doing at that point? You're, you're being conceited. You're being puffed up. You think you're better than others. And um, my former pastor said this one time. It's kind of stuck with me. Better to humble yourself now than to be humiliated later. Um, it'll come back to bite you if you're so high and mighty and thinking that you're better than others. If you're not willing to humble yourself now, it may come around where you're put in a situation where you're going to be not just humble, but maybe humiliated. Okay. All right, let's talk about issues of revenge here. Issues of revenge. What does he say there in verse 17? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Do not repay evil for evil. Proverbs 20, 22, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for, the, wait for the Lord and He will deliver you. What's our tendency when we get hurt? What do we want to do? Retaliate, get even. And what does that proverb say? Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. Is it hard to wait for the Lord? especially if you've been hurt. But He will deliver you. Does that mean He's going to deliver you right away? Maybe. Maybe not. But He will deliver you. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to anyone, to one another, and to everyone. Seek to do good. Don't, don't repay evil for evil. Um, 1 Peter 3.9 says... Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, this is very difficult. If you've been, if somebody's done something evil to you, what are you supposed to do? Now, what are, you what are you supposed to do? Forgive them and trust the Lord. Now, I've not talked about legal things, okay? Because we'll talk about that next week. What happens if somebody does something to you that hurts you and it's a crime? I.e. abuse, rape, some type of assault, do you, does that mean that there should never be justice for that person because you're a Christian? They should never go to jail. They should never be prosecuted. No, that's not what that means. What it means is it's not your responsibility to go be a vigilante. Like, for example, if Dawn got assaulted or something happened to her, it's not my job to go hunt the guy down and kill him, even though I may want to. 
we'd have to trust the legal system to follow the course of legal action to see if the guy's been brought to justice. And we trust and wait on the Lord. Okay. That's a hard process. We need to forgive that person for doing what he did. But I can't go take matters into my own hands and try to repay evil for evil. We're also supposed to be giving thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. What's honorable. Um, 2 Corinthians 8.21 says, We aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. We want to be honorable in the sight of man. What does it mean to be honorable in the sight of man? It basically means this. Our public behavior is above criticism. Nobody can criticize your life or bring a, a, a rebuke or reproach upon your life. You, you live above reproach. Okay? Now, verse 18. Read it carefully. Peacemakers. Let me read it carefully. If possible, as far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Okay, we're to live peaceably with all. That's one of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're to be peacemakers. We're to live peaceably. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone. But I want you to notice the caveat that Paul says, because you may think, wow, that's kind of difficult, Paul. You don't know who I have to live with or have to work with. What's he say? If possible, so far as it depends upon you. There may be times when you take the initiative to be a peacemaker, and you've done all you can do, all you can possibly do to make peace. And there's still no peace because the other person doesn't want to resolve the conflict. You may not ever be able to live in peace with that person, but you've done everything you can do, if at all possible. Now, let's just talk a little bit about what happens if you can't resolve the conflict one-on-one -on -one and it's a situation between you and another Christian. Do you know there are steps that Jesus tells us to take when there's conflict, when there's sin. In Matthew 18, 15 through 17, let me take you through these steps of how to seek peace. Okay? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Okay, what's step number one? You go privately to the person that you have a problem with, just between the two of you, and what do you do? You confront them. You hash it out. If he listens to you, what happens? No harm, no foul. You move on. Okay, It's resolved. If he listens to you, it's resolved. There's forgiveness. There's resolution. He repents. She repents. You've gone privately and you've worked things out. Okay, What happens if you go and you work things out or you go privately and you go multiple times privately and they don't listen to you and there's still conflict and there's no repentance? What do you do next? Okay, look at the next verse. But... If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, what do you do next? 
You have to take two or three witnesses. Why two or three witnesses? So it's not a he said, he said, or she said, she said. You've got to have other people involved in the process. Okay, what happens if, he, what happens if you take two or three others with you and you confront the person and they repent and, they, and there's forgiveness and there's reconciliation? It just stops right there, right? It's, it's, it's done. What happens if that doesn't work? Okay, the next step. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Okay? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What happens if the whole church knows at a special meeting and that person repents before the church? Is it over? Yes. What if that person doesn't show up or that person doesn't repent and the whole church knows about it and all these steps have been taken? What do you do? You have to excommunicate the person out of very much sadness. Um, so there's steps Jesus takes us through. So you don't immediately kick somebody out of the church and you don't immediately go behind somebody's back. What are the extremes? Like when something bad happens in church, I've seen extremes. We've got to kick these people out of church. We've got to have church discipline and kick them out of church. Or people gossip behind their back. The one thing I always ask is, did you ever go to that person and talk to them? No, but I've got a contingent of people that are taking up my offense and I'm talking about them behind their back. Okay, well, Pastor Sean, you go talk to him for me. I will be a mediator, but I will bring the two of you together and you two talk about things. Why is it sometimes easier to say nothing during conflict and let it fester instead of being a peacemaker? If there's conflict, like, so some people, a lot of people are allergic to conflict. They'd rather just let stuff happen than to go confront. Is that healthy? It's hard. I mean, as a pastor, I've had to go confront a lot of people over the years. Do I particularly like it? No. Is it my personality to be combative and confrontive? No. Do I have to get prayed up before I go do it? Yes. But do I have to do it at times? Yes. Don will tell you, I, I mean, I don't particularly like to go confront somebody and there's been times where i was praying that it would get resolved before i had to go do it and then it didn't and then you're like oh it'll resolve itself Let's give it a few more days ramped up the tension a few more days okay i gotta go deal with it so we don't want to be peacemakers at times okay Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, this is the issue of vengeance and wrath. This is almost like not just repaying evil for evil, but like taking out vengeance and wrath. Leviticus 19, 18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And we should never try to mete out a retributive justice on someone else, but instead leave it to the Lord's hands. And Paul quotes there from Deuteronomy 32, 35, says, Vengeance is mine, and recompense for time when the foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Okay. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We're not to avenge ourselves. 
okay, so let's say I've resigned myself and I know God's going to be the one that's going to deal with it. What do we want God to do? Deal with it immediately. Like strike him dead with a lightning bolt, God. That's how I want you to deal with it. Or make him die in a car. I mean, I'm just being extreme here, but we want God to deal with it immediately. Okay, can God do that? Yes. Will he always do that? Will God on the final day right all the wrongs? Yes. God will vindicate you on the final day. He says this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-8, Paul. This evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you're also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just... To replay, repay, this is God. To God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you may not experience vindication in this earth, but God will right all the wrongs on that final day. God will sort it out. It's not your job to sort out the justice. It's not your job to take matters in your own hands. It's not our job to be vengeful or spiteful or try to um, repay evil for evil. Let Trust the Lord that He will work it out in His timing, in His way. Okay, so what are we supposed to do to our enemies? Pray for them. If your enemy's hungry, kick him to the curb, right? Say, go get your own food. What does it say? If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will burn, you will um, heat burning coals on his head. Okay. Anybody see anybody walk around with burning coals on their head? What, what is this idea? Um, what's this issue of burning coals on the head? Well, it's, it's a proverbial statement. It goes back to the Proverbs. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. If your enemy's hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Okay, what does it mean to heap burning coals on his head? It doesn't mean literally. If somebody's rude to you, go to your fireplace, get burning coals, and go up and take a pan and say, Ha, I'm going to put this on your head. It's a metaphor, okay? Okay, so here's the idea. The idea here is that if you continue to show kindness to someone who's hurt you, as opposed to gossiping about them, as opposed to trying to get even with them, if you show kindness to them, they're going to be overcome with shame and guilt, and they'll be won over. Uh, the coals on the head a symbol that their mind has been changed because of your amazing and continual acts of love. I'm reminded of a story. When I went to the French island of Martinique on a mission trip when I was a, a freshman in college, they told us a story about a woman in the church who um, had to walk a mile to get to the church. And every morning as she'd get up and get dressed for church, her husband would pour boiling water from the oven or on, on the stove. He'd pour the water on her and then he'd hit her over the head with a frying pan and say, I don't want you to go to that church and cuss her out. And she would say, I forgive you, I love you. And she'd walk out the door and she'd walk a mile to church. And she'd come back, and he'd be stewing the whole time. This went on for years where he was abusive. 
And finally, she came back, and she was about to go to church, and he was about to hit her over the head with the frying pan, and he just broke down crying and said, Jesus, please forgive me because I've been wrong. And she says, well, what's been the change in you? You've done this to me every Sunday for our whole life. He's like, I've seen you love me and forgive me and walk to church and come back. And you've always told me Jesus loves me. And because of what you've done, I know now that Jesus loves me and I need to ask your forgiveness and ask his forgiveness and I need to come to Christ. So he got saved and then he became like one of the elders in the church later on. That's an example of heaping burning coals on somebody's head. Now, would I counsel that woman to keep getting beaten over the head every Sunday? No. As a pastor, I would say you need to probably get out of that relationship. Another culture, another time, but that's an example of someone who continued an act of kindness to where the guy was finally broken down. So basically what, what the point is is that eventually your enemy will be won over by your kindness and it's almost a punishment that no one, no one can bear. Kill them with kindness is what they used to say. I like, I like um, Psalm 37.5. This is a good psalm. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. Commit your ways to Him, trust in Him, He will act. Jesus is our ultimate model of this type of attitude. What does Peter say Jesus did when he went to the cross? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus was silent in front of those that were reviling him, and he suffered. And he's our example. Not only our example, but he's our Savior as well. And the last thing Paul says there is be an overcomer. Be an overcomer. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay. This is really the essence of the Christian life. Remember what I said earlier? Hate what is evil, love what is good. And you got to know what evil and good are. Okay, so... It starts in your mind. Because remember, Paul starts back in this first chapter with renewing your mind. So, so I want you to think about good and evil. Are you those who think, ponder, dwell upon what is good? Are you being transformed in your thinking about what is good? In your thinking. Are you letting evil overcome your thinking? Okay, let's think about the opposite. Are you thinking about evil? Are you dwelling on evil? Are you letting the world squeeze you into its mold? So it starts with where you think, what you ponder. If you're pondering good or you're pondering evil, what usually comes out is words and actions. Okay? So are you saying and doing good or are you saying and doing evil? In other words, is your whole Christian life one of 
doing gospel good for the glory of God in thought, word, and deed? Or is your life overcome by sinful evil in thought, word, and deed? Now, that's Paul's list. But I want to show you how the Bible interprets the Bible. So I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, and I want you to think about the list we just looked at. And I want you to see how Peter echoes <coughs> or reemphasizes what Paul taught us here. So 1 Peter 4, 7 through 19. Everybody there? Okay. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and in dominion forever and ever. Peter combines spiritual gifts with showing hospitality and love and prayer. The same way Paul in chapter 12 tied spiritual gifts to living the Christian life of love and prayer and hospitality and all those types of things. Now, as you think about our passage in Romans, it's a very long list. Okay? So just turn back to Romans for a moment. Turn back to Romans 12. And I want to give you some encouragement this week. Sometimes when Paul hits you with the list of all these things you're supposed to do, you can get overwhelmed. And like tonight, you can like try to remember what we, what we talked about tonight because there were so many of them. So here's something you can do this week. Okay, I would take, if you have a journal or you have a notebook, I would go back this week and I would go through this list and I would I would list everything out on a sheet of paper like just list what Paul has there and then next to it I would spend time in prayer asking how God asking God to show you how you can personally apply those things in your life okay and here's what I also would encourage you with is there one issue or maybe two, don't get too overwhelmed, but maybe one or two things on that list that stood out to you to say, man, that's where I really need to grow. That's where I really struggle. That's where it really hits home. Go back and maybe highlight those two and spend some extra time praying and asking the Lord to give you strength, okay? Because when you have a list like this, and, and, and you, like we get to the end of tonight, and it's like, well, I feel beat up because I'm not doing any of this stuff. You feel like all, all the stuff I'm supposed to be doing and I'm not supposed to be doing. Let me just leave you with this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Remember, God's grace is sufficient to help you live these out. So take this list, spend some time praying over it, looking at it, 
which areas you need to grow in, which ones you need to pray through. How can you practically live these things out in your life? So that's all I have for tonight. Do we have any questions in the last 10 minutes or so? Yes? Um, I have something about hospitality. I was yeah. thinking about it. Okay. Um, when people ask me about this church, I always tell them two things. And the first thing is how I appreciate how God works through you and that no one I've ever met my whole entire life knows the scripture like you. Okay. And then about, about a year after I was going here, I had my daughter. And I was walking through the, with her, and and I should know your name, but I don't. I'm sorry, Danae. Danae handed me a blanket that somebody had knitted, or and she said, "We love your daughter." And I handed it to me, and you probably didn't know this, but I see the church. Yes, and so that's why I wanted you to know that that meant the world to me, and and I'm so glad to tell people like that's the kind of church I go to. Hmm. Amen. To well, thanks for sharing. Did you remember that, Janae? Okay. Cool. Rico. I remembered um, in going and then knocking on someone someone's door when they uh, invited me, telling me to come back. That was pretty cool. Back in the day. Yeah. Back when you could knock on people's door and not we be not be, gra- not be not be not be not have didn't have they didn't have shotguns or. Yeah, I did it one time. Yeah, we used to do when I first moved here. We used yeah. to I, I did you that were, and then. You were the one that did it. Oh, I was the one that did it. Okay. No, you had. Oh, you had, I had you go with me? <laughs> or you went out with us and did yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to go into the community. Yeah. Um, Sometimes the words just come out. You think, Where'd those come from? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's praying for boldness and clarity, and sometimes the Holy Spirit gives you words to say. Mm-hmm. Any other questions or comments? Come on. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Shauna. Yeah. Like, well, you know, they got that promotion or, yeah. You know. So I think part of that is easier, like yeah. weeping and feeling. Yeah, it's easy. I mean, yeah, I say sometimes it's easier to say, I guess there's two extremes. You could look at somebody that's weeping and you could not be empathetic and say, well, I'm glad that it's not me going through that or she got what she deserves. But then when somebody does get something and you're like, how come they got the promotion or how come they got the this or that? And, you know, and you're like, Instead of rejoicing with them and being happy for them, you're like a little jealous or a little yeah, disappointed. Like your yeah, like that should have happened to me, not them. Yeah. Don, what were you going to say? Yeah, the difference, the, the question is the difference between a spiritual gift and the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are characteristics that you display. The gifts of the Spirit are specifically given to you for building up the body of Christ in service. So I think the gifts are more for service. The fruit is more for your totality of your... Because I think you're supposed to display all the fruit of the Spirit. You're not supposed to display all the gifts of the Spirit. I think only the Lord gives certain gifts... Whereas the, the, the list of the gifts of the Spirit, that, that's, you can't have all of them. The fruit of the Spirit, we need to display all of them because it's not the fruits of the Spirit. Go back and read Galatians. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's one fruit. 
with different aspects to it. So you can't just have one and not all of them. Does that answer your question? I'm never going to do that, God. And then you're like, yeah, my parents, when they were, um, when my dad was saved and called to the ministry and went to seminary, the one thing that my parents said is we will never, ever, ever move to Texas, anywhere but Texas. Well, guess where we ended up moving when I was a kid? <laughs> Spent my formative years in Texas because my dad got called to, to two churches down there. And so um, don't ever say, God, I'm never, ever going to do it because God may say, it's exactly what you're going to do. May or may not, but I'm just saying, I think if you ever give God an ultimatum, be careful how you deal with that. Yeah, I agree with that, Shauna. I, one of the values, I guess one of the things that I really would want Emmanuel to be, and I've tried to model it, and I hope we, hopefully God has blessed us with that, is I don't ever want us to be a church that thinks we're all that or that we're high and mighty or that we've, I mean, I, I want us to have an attitude of humility. I think God blesses that. But I think a lot of, I guess you said ministries or churches, yeah, they... Okay. How that all transpired and stuff. I mean, you just think that it got us skewed, you know, our, our teachings. I don't know what happened with Beth. <laughs> I know what you're saying. How she how she changed over the years and got more focused on herself and kind of got off the rails and now she's kind of yeah. I think that any time you put a person, regardless of their personality, in a position of immediate popularity and power. If they don't have a close walk with the Lord and counselors around them, it would be easy for any of us to let it go to our heads. That's why I hear a lot of pastors, friends of mine, that like, man, I wish I could pastor a megachurch. Like, do you really want to pastor a megachurch? Like, that scares me half to death to think about. Because immediately, the bigger your church, the bigger the expectation and the bigger the limelight. And some people can handle that. Um, I remember John Piper a few years, well, it was about 10 years ago, he took a leave of absence from his church because he felt like he was getting a little bit too popular and he wanted to take a back seat. So I think he stepped down for like six months because he knew in his heart he felt like he was getting a little bit too popular and he needed to get, he needed to get back to reality. That's a good example of somebody that did that, but... You know, a lot of a lot of pastors or ministries they they get so into themselves that pretty soon they think they're invincible and they they get away with whatever. Yeah, crash and burn. Yeah, that's a good one. Any other questions? I'm not taking snide remarks tonight. Just questions. I'll take a few comments. All right, we're good. So next week we've talked about okay, we've talked about your personal worship. We've talked about your spiritual gifts. We've talked about living out your Christianity towards one another and actually how people come against you. Next week, we're going to talk about how do you live out your Christianity in relationship to the government, the governing authorities. 
Paul gives it submission to governing authority. So next week we're going to talk about how does the Christian relate to the government? Fun topic, huh? All right. You guys ready to quit? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. I know it's been a lot of information, a lot of um, just a big list. And Lord, we know we fall short of these things, but that's why we need your grace. And, and Lord, I guess if there's one thing that we would be known for, and that is love. I think love is the biggest thing that binds all these together. If we truly love genuinely, um, it really covers almost all of these. So Lord, help us to have that genuine love for others because you genuinely loved us. Um, help us to put these things into practice. Lord, I pray for each of us that we look at this list and evaluate and see where we're weak and see where we need help. And Lord, would you give us the grace to be the people you've called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.